Hey, this is Satori Shakur, coming to you live at WDET in Detroit. Our next storyteller, Shahed Atia. It's a love story. She goes on a journey when she tries to answer the question, why are there only three African-Americans in her class? Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for a wonderful story from Shahed Atia. Between 2010 and 2013, I was part of a think tank group inside state prisons advocating for restorative justice at Ryan Correctional Facility. The Ryan Correctional Facility is attached to the Mount Facility on one side. How odd. A prison is attached to another prison as its nearby landmark, right in the middle of a neighborhood. I sat in many circles then discussing the various theories of justice. Some of my classmates were incarcerated, others were not. One day, a classmate of mine who was doing time, a lot of time, said, the mental prisons we live through here are worse than the physical confines of the bars. I responded that just because I get in my car and leave here every night doesn't mean I don't live in mental prisons of my own on the outside. I wasn't behind bars. I was free. I was free to make change happen. But what's it matter anyway? And back then, I was reading sociologists that said policies are in place to keep things exactly as they are. So how different is Iraq from America anyway? Most of the men and women I met on the inside had little or no choice over their surroundings. But environment alone can't be the only reason of how somebody turns out, because Look at my dad. He came from a village in Iraq with no running water. He didn't see color TV till he was in college. And he was first in his high school class, first in his medical school class, and first over the entire Arab board for the entire Middle East. But I knew that for every two men on the inside, there was one on the outside. So where are the African-American men that didn't go to prison? How differently did their lives turn out than the guys on the inside? I applied to Wayne State University Law School to meet African Americans. When I got to school, I was disappointed that my class makeup didn't reflect the city demographics. There were three African Americans in my class. Cecil was one of them. I met Cecil outside the school the first day, near the corridor. Naturally, he asked me where I had gone to undergrad, and I said, you have from Dearborn. He said, oh, I went there briefly. I said, what year? He said some year in the 90s, but I, I didn't catch it because I was thinking about how I was in elementary school in the 90s. <laughs> I said, then what'd you do? He said, then I went to MSU to finish my first undergrad, then I went to Eastern to do my MBA, and I went back to MSU to do my second undergrad, then I moved to New York to work for Coca-Cola, then I moved to Lansing, then I moved back to Detroit to go to law school. And I thought, when would you have time to do all of that? <laughs> because you look 25. How old are you? And he said, I'm 35. And that's when I learned the meaning of black don't crack. 
Cecil, Cecil didn't have one wrinkle on his face, but he had life experience. I was intrigued. I was also intrigued that he was my classmate. So I went home and I called my best friend and told her, this guy's an anomaly. I've never seen anything like him. I also told my mom because I knew she was a big supporter of education and he was doing law school completely on his own. In fact, he went against the advice of close friends and family members to take a chance on law school. He was going to study for three years and take a bar exam on the off chance that this law school thing was going to be meant to be. One of the first things I remember him saying is, I wasn't even supposed to live this long, so I'm just playing with house money. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we all lived life as if we were playing with house money? How freeing. I started inviting Cecil over, and the first time I invited him over, he said, this is the first time a non-African-American family invited me to their house. I was stunned by that. So I started inviting him to everything. <laughs> my birthday parties and my sister's birthday parties and anything else I could get him to attend. He quickly learned not to eat before coming over from that one time my dad refilled his plate three times <laughs> after he had McDonald's on the way. His excuse was, I didn't know you were going to serve food. And the lesson there, Arabs always serve food. <laughs> I also noticed that my dad started to like him when he took him on a tour of the tea cabinet. Now in my house, my dad was responsible for preparing the tea after dinner. And he took Cecil over to the cabinet and he explained every single tea in there and how much sugar each family member requires. So I knew, I knew he was well-liked. But at school, I tried to keep an emotional distance from Cecil, but also study with him. He knew his stuff. First semester of law school, I was running uh, study groups, and he would sit in the group quietly. But then when he'd offer his answer, it was always correct. And people would ask me, who would you be afraid of going up against in court? And I would say, Cecil. He was my only competition. But he was making my Arab boyfriend look bad. My Arab boyfriend, who was going to be a doctor, and whose mom offered to buy me a Range Rover if I married him. My Arab boyfriend would say things like, I feel like you want a man that asks you how you're doing every day. Uh, back at school, Cecil was asking me how I was doing every day, and I was thinking, what was wrong with that anyway? The first summer of law school, I elected to go to India to work on human rights campaigns. And my Arab boyfriend stopped talking to me altogether because I chose to go to India instead of getting a job here. So I was abandoning us. Back at home, my family was going through their own stuff. My grandmother had suffered her first stroke. And I lost a friend when I didn't say bye to her because I was thinking, I'll see her in three months. But she passed away. India was lonely. Not only was I halfway across the world from everything I knew in a village, I was also 10 and a half hours behind everyone. But Cecil was checking up on me. And he was surprised when he was met with anger and hostility. Because I didn't want him to check up on me. 
I didn't want him to be nice. I wanted my boyfriend to do that. So when I got back to the States, I really tried to make it work with my boyfriend. So I learned Cecil's schedule and I could avoid seeing him all day at school. But it was really awkward in the class where I have to walk by him to get to my seat. At the end of that semester, he reached out to me to check on me, of course. And we started talking again. And that following summer, I found out that we were going to both be working downtown. So I said, hey, we'll have lunch all the time. And he said, yeah, right. Which was understandable since I had been dodging every invitation for the last two years. But that summer, we hung out almost every day. And I used Cecil's listening ear to get advice on what I should do with my Arab boyfriend. But the advice wasn't all that great. because I wasn't disclosing the extent of what I was going through. I was too ashamed. Back at school, I had the reputation of being one of the best oralists on campus. I was nothing to mess with. Everybody was celebrating me, my colleagues, my mentors, my family, except my boyfriend, the one person I wanted to celebrate me. But my boyfriend was feeling threatened, so he wanted me to quit that, to focus on us. But if I was hanging out with him, I was distracting him from studying. And if I wasn't hanging out with him, I wasn't taking care of the stuff that would help him study, like do his laundry or clean his apartment. <laughs> but it was still too shameful to admit. By the end of that summer, one day, Cecil invited me to go on the people mover for my... WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. First time. And during that trip, I said, do you remember when you offered to take me to your neighborhood in Detroit? He said, yes, any day. And I said, how about today? So that day, we drove to his neighborhood. He was going to show me his grandmother's old house in Barton McFarland. Although, to be fair, we had to look that up on a map because Cecil always called it Grand River and Plymouth Road. <laughs> when we got to the neighborhood, it reminded me of Baghdad in 98. There was a couple houses every couple blocks. And the neighborhood was abandoned like no one lived there. Some houses looked like a rocket went through them. Detroit looked like it took a hit of what resembles a war, but it didn't reap any of the benefits. Because at least after a war, there's some effort for rebuilding. But where's the effort to rebuild here? When we got to his grandmother's house, we, we got out of the car and we looked at the house in shock. The chimney was caving in on the roof and some windows were missing. I don't think Cecil had seen the house in this condition. I couldn't imagine a family living here. But Cecil lived here. He grew up here. He came out of here. How? How can Cecil have so much education and still have the door shut in his face. How can he fall and fall and fall and get back up again? How can he have so much hope and ambition and unrelenting desire to do better and be better, to aspire and inspire? 
He always says, West Side is the death side. And I remember the first time I heard him say that, my politically correct self was like, oh, how could you say that? But then he'd point out every night on the news, all the shootings are on the West Side. What I saw in the neighborhood is a manifestation of structural racism. What I saw in Cecil is the desire to overcome it against all odds. So I started dating him. <laughs> After two years, I told my parents I was dating him seriously, and they said, you need to break it off. Well, I had already tried to break it off once before. It was, it's harder for my own emotional well-being to say, my family won't like you for things you can't change to make it seem like they're unwelcoming. It was easier to say, hey, we're probably not gonna work out. After that, I was given an ultimatum by my family, either us or Cecil. It's hard for my family to admit it was an ultimatum, but I was given the ultimatum on uh, Sunday and on Monday, I packed up my things and left home. In the Arab world, the expectation is that I would date Cecil in secret and stay living at home. So some of my Arab friends called me and said, how'd you do it? How'd you move out? My dad was in denial when I told him I signed the lease. He said, why don't you wait for your middle sister to apply to grad school and get accepted and your little sister to decide which law school she was going to go to? It took him almost six months to come visit me. And when he did, he spent the whole time talking about how much money I would save if I lived at home and commuted downtown to work. My mom, my mom blames herself for making me like Cecil. Because back at school, when she heard about him, she was sending him lunches to feed him for days. And I would say, hey, mom, what about me? I'm your daughter. And she would say, see if Cecil will share his lunch with you. The lunch I personally delivered and heated up and served. So she was thinking, maybe that made me like him. My dad was blaming himself because maybe he should have been more strict. Maybe he shouldn't have let me hang out and study with Cecil. The reality is this whole thing is probably out of their hands. My parents brought me here from Iraq, and they contemplated success, higher education, starting a family, but they never contemplated this. Never defiance at this level. It's easy for my family to look at us and say, well, he's different. We're probably not going to get along. We're not going to see eye to eye. Their culture is different than ours. It's harder to think of the moments when I take Cecil something to try and I say, here, try this. It's my grandma's recipe. And he says, this tastes like soul food. This will be a hit at the family barbecue. <laughs> it's harder to see how much Cecil loves education like my mom. It's harder to see that Cecil made it out of the same conditions that my dad made it out of. And for Cecil and his friends and family, it's probably hard for them to see him in this kind of relationship. And he won't tell me, but I know he's hurting too. If you ask Cecil, he'll say, it was meant to be for uh, a man from the west side of Detroit to start law school at 35 and meet a woman from Baghdad at the same law school who made it there against all odds. I don't believe in any of that. <laughs> this is all coincidence. 
And some people have asked me, why Cecil? Why is he so special? Truly, this isn't about choosing Cecil versus my family. This is about me choosing my happiness. I got sick of fighting for my clients' freedom when I felt like I didn't have my own. I was walking into the cage and locking the door and throwing the key away. So here I am, taking my freedom. Thank you. Twisted Storytellers Podcast is a production of WDET in Detroit. Recorded live at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History by Rassam Cherry. Sound design and mix by Sam Bobian and Rowan Nemisto. Podcast coordinator Joan Isabella. And special thanks to Michael Perkins. I'm your host, Satori Shakur. And thank you, MGM Grand, for supporting season three of the Twisted Storytellers podcast. See y'all next time. <laughs>